Uh, I'm excited for today. I've been brewing this one for a while. And um, have you ever guys ever gotten really, really good news? Some really good news, right? You thought there was like a diagnosis of some kind and then you go to the doctor and it turns out there wasn't. That's good news. Um, have you ever heard that you got the job promotion? You didn't think you were going to get it, but you got it. That was good news, right? Remember, um, remember when you wake up on a Saturday and you think it's a school day? And so you, get all, you got all dressed up and then you look at the clock and then you're like, wait a minute, it's Saturday. That's good news, right? <laughs> and you just like jump back in bed. Um, we've all experienced what, what, good news, uh, what good news feels like. And Katie earlier, she was reading this, this really famous passage of scripture that we read at Christmas time most often from Luke 2. And here's what it says. It says, it says that the angels came and they, the, there was these three things. They said, the angel said to them, he's talking to the shepherds, do not be afraid. This is verse 10, Luke 2, 10. It says, do not be afraid. I bring you what? Good news, good news um, that will cause great joy for all the people. For these next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're just going to unpack those three things. Good news, great joy, all the people. What does that mean for us? So this morning, I just want to talk about good news, good news. And we want to kind of deconstruct it a little bit, not destroy it. We want to deconstruct it a little bit. In fact, it's good at Christmas time to kind of deconstruct the story, not destroy it, but deconstruct it because... Because in this season, we just get so caught up in the nostalgia of it, and we just, you know, it's all the warm fuzzies, and we forget just the, the, the meaning, the true, like, the, the crazy, I mean, the Christmas story, I mean, what happens in these passages, it sounds all nice and fluffy and flowery, but, I mean, it was intense. I want to give you a taste this morning. I hope to try to give you an, a taste of the intensity of what's going on here um, in the Christmas story that sometimes we forget about. Um, I think one of the reasons why we get so, um, we kind of have a picture of what, of like kind of the nice, soft edges and fluffiness of the Christmas season is just because of like a lot of the, the cute nativity scenes that we see. You know, it starts when we're young, right? So when you read kids' Bibles, and there's tons of kids' Bibles at, at my house, and we pull them out at Christmas time, especially like the ones that are Christmas-themed. And, uh, and I took some pictures of some of the nativity pictures, right, from some of our, our Christmas books at home. Here's one, right? This is one of my kids' books. Um, and, you know, there's like the nice manger scene and everybody's smiling and there's baby Jesus. By the way, um, Dawson, who's almost three, I was reading this with him the other day and I open up to this page and he's like, oh, baby Yoda, baby Yoda. <sighs> Man, and I'm like, not only do I have to compete with Santa Claus, I got to compete with baby Yoda now, okay? So anyways, uh, and here's another one. You know, there's, there's another one of our books. You know, I mean, it's like super things are nice and you know just like everything's really calm and peaceful and the silent night holy night stuff um then there's I think there's another one you guys will appreciate you know my my veggie tales one that we have um and it got me thinking about just like all there's all sorts of other nativity scenes because you know we don't show the next picture yet but you know these you guys know that this isn't what it was like right um, I mean, it was, it was so much more intense than this, but it starts when we're young thinking about this. But it just makes it so that we can make nativity scenes be whatever we want them to be and kind of make the Christmas story be whatever we want. So, like, for instance, I found some other nativity sets that are out there. So, like, here's a nice one. one the one that struck me about this one is most nativity scenes, most everybody is white. <laughs> do you guys notice all that? Um, and so it's just weird that, like, we, you know, we do that with the nativity scenes uh, going on. Uh, to some of these other ones. This one's made completely out of meat. This is a meat nativity scene. 
Guys, it just goes downhill from here, all right? It's just going to go downhill. There's lots more. Let's go to the next one. So this one is made out of shotgun shells. So this is kind of like a, a hillbilly nativity scene. Uh, next one. Um, this one was just a weird one. <laughs> I was like, what the heck? It's just a bad idea. You don't put baby Jesus like underwater, okay? <laughs> Babies need to breathe. Um, next one. Uh, this one was hilarious to me because it's a, like an abstract nativity scene, you know? And because I went to art school at the University of Oregon, I laughed at this because if I made this for like one of my college level art classes, the, they would love it. I would get such a good grade on this because in art school, it's like, oh, that's so deep, right? All right, next one. Uh, and then this one's a nativity scene with beer and alcohol, right? You guys just got all the players there. That's good. And then I think this next one, oh yeah, so this is the, uh, the, the hipster, you know, the millennial nativity. It just makes me laugh every time I see it. Uh, and then I think the last one was my favorite. The last one was an Irish nativity set. And what you can't see, it's hard to see in the picture, is they're bringing gold, clover, and Guinness is what they're bringing. It just makes me laugh. Uh, the point is, the point is, is we can make Christmas and the story look like we want it to look, and we forget that what it actually looked like, okay? Um, so it's important that we, that we, like, we kind of move away from some of the nostalgia stuff, not destroy it completely, but we need to deconstruct it a bit because Christmas can't be just something that warms your heart. It's, Christmas has to be something that captures your heart. It's got to go so much for, far beyond warming your heart. So let me read to you. I want to read to you. We read from Luke 2. Uh, this is, this is uh, Matthew's version of, of the birth story of Jesus. So let me read it to you, and we're just going to pull out a few things here, and we're going to get really nerdy together, all right? You guys ready? Okay. Uh, so Matthew chapter 1, it goes this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was, was faithful to the law, and by the way, in this day, I mean, it says that he was her husband, because in this day, when you were betrothed to someone, um, you, were, you were, it was essentially like you were married to them. This engagement was like as strong as a marriage, really. Um, and so, you know, there, it, was, it was a big deal, you know. Uh, because Joseph was her husband and was faithful to the law, and, and yet, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, she is conceived, uh, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Um, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us, God with us. Um, there's a lot of good news right here in this passage. Um, unfortunately, sometimes people don't think what we ha as Christians have to offer is good news. Um, people often think that what we have to offer as Christians or what the scripture is offering us, and if there is a God out there, that what he's offer offering us is more like a, like, a, like a system of earning it. So, a lot of people don't want to come to church or don't want to hear what we have to say as Christians because they think that the story goes that God put down some rules and that if we just perform good enough and if he just inspects us, he's kind of like a big Santa Claus in the sky and at the end he's going to figure out who was naughty and who was nice and the people who are naughty get coal and the people who are nice, they get to go to heaven 
and then we just have to try to do good. We just try to have to be better and follow his rules. And if we can do that, then he'll love us and like us and accept us. That's what most people think. And if that was the story, ladies and gentlemen, it would not be good news. That would be bad news. That would be the worst news because we're just not good at being good. We're not good at, like, at doing this perfectly because it goes down to the very motives of who we are. We're just not good at it. And if that's the case, then it's not good news. But this is good news, everybody. The, ne- the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas is good news. That's why the angels said, we give you good news of great joy for all the people. Um, and, here was the, and here's some things in the good news. And we can see some of the good news in these names of Jesus. In the passage that I just read you, there's three different, there's three different names of Jesus that we see that are mentioned. All right, you guys ready to get, like, get into some serious Bible nerdiness? All right? Some of you are excited. Some of you are going to be bored, and I don't care. All right? Um, we're going to get into some Bible nerdiness. It's going to be fun. Uh, the first name that we see here is the word Messiah. Messiah. You've heard that word before. Can we put that, that Messiah slide up here? This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. So I have it. That's what it is in, in, in Hebrew right there. And it means, the word Messiah means the anointed slash chosen one. The anointed one. It's that word Messiah. Okay? So in Hebrew, it's Messiah. But when you translate that into, into Greek, it translates into Christos, which is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Um, it was not Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, and so therefore Jesus is Jesus Christ. That's not what we're saying when we're saying Jesus Christ. We're saying Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the, the chosen king. Jesus, the Messiah. It's a title. It's not a name. Um, so that's one thing we see, first of all, that Jesus in his name, that he's this, he's the king. He's the king. And then the next name that we see in here is, uh, is just the name Jesus. Remember, the angel comes to Joseph and he says, you will call him Jesus. And so what about, what about, uh, what about over here? Let's go to Jesus. Thank you. So the word Jesus in Hebrew, this, this is going to mess with your minds, guys. All right. It's been messing with my mind all week long. In Hebrew, it's right there. And you would pronounce it Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And that word means Yahweh saves. It's like this word, you know, the, the word for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, this really like sacred word. And so Yehoshua means Yahweh saves. This is the name of Jesus. That's why the angel says, you're going to name him Yahweh saves because he's going to save. Who's going to save, angel? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves is going to save. His name means Yahweh saves. And so it's Yehoshua. Um, but when over time you kind of shorten that down and, it's, and it becomes Yeshua in the Greek, which is where we get the name Joshua. So Jesus' name is actually Joshua. Did you guys know that? <laughs> like in Hebrew, it's Joshua. Now, I'm not saying that we should start praying in Joshua's name, okay? <laughs> um, let's keep Jesus, all right? But it's just like, oh, wow, it's like blowing our minds. Like, have we been saying the wrong name the whole time? No, we haven't. But in, in, in Hebrew, it's kind of Yehoshua. But when you change that into Greek, you get this, this Jesus, Jesus. And in Latin languages, this still sounds the same as Jesus in Latin languages. But over time, the Jesus, you just kind of like slap a J on there. Voila, Jesus, Jesus. Interesting, right? So first we have a king, King Jesus, the Messiah. And then we have, then we have he's not only just a king, but he's a king that can save. He's Yahweh saves. He's a king that saves. And then the last word that we have is just the word Emmanuel. I don't have a fancy slide for you on this one. It's just the word Emmanuel because we've heard this one before. And we've heard lots of sermons on it before, probably. Emmanuel, it means God with us. 
God with us. And guys, in these three names, we're told who Jesus is. And in these three names is great, great good news for us. Because these three things are the things that we ache for. These three things are the things that every human being longs for and aches for. A king that cares, that not only can save, but does save and saves by coming and being with us. All, you need all three of those things. If you have just a combination of those things, it's not good news. You might have a king, but if he's a king that, that, that you know, can save, um, but he doesn't come near, what do you have? You have like a, like a, like a dictator. If you've got a king that, can come, that comes near but can't really save, what do you have? You have like a mascot. You have kind of like a guru, somebody that you go to for some good advice. The only way you get to good news, the only way that the, the thing that we really need, we don't need another mascot. We don't need more happy Christmas songs to make us feel good. We actually need a king that has the authority and the power to come and deliver and save. And he's going to do that, not by, not by staying at a distance, but by coming close. If you've got a God like that, that is cause for celebration. That is good news. And that's the thing that we need. And that's who we have in Jesus. And we can see it through just the names that he's given right at the very beginning. He's the king who's near, and he's the God that saves. Um, here's the problem. <clears throat> and the heart of really what I want to investigate with you today is what Matthew is wanting us to see is this. Here we have this Messiah Jesus. He's the king. He can deliver. But then when everything starts going down and Jesus is born and just this whole story, um, things don't actually go very well. And Matthew wants us to see this. So you would think that, you know, like good news, the Messiah's here, and that everybody, like those first nativity scenes that we saw, everybody's going to be happy, and everything's going to be jolly, and everything's going to be great, and just like everything's going to be changed now. But when you get into the story, you see that good things don't happen at the very beginning. And Matthew wants us to kind of like, wants to stir that up in us. In fact, actually, everything gets worse when the Messiah shows up. And what are we supposed to do with that? And there's actually a really deep pastoral point for us this morning. Um, but I just want to take you through the story a little bit from Mary's perspective. And I want you to imagine how actually terrifying this all was, okay? So um, I'm not going to read to you the whole part of, of Matthew 2, but basically we're walking through Matthew chapter 2 right now. First, you're a teenage Jewish girl, and you're engaged to be married. Um, Mary and Joseph have history uh, because their families, you know, back then it wasn't like dating today. There were, what was it back then? It was arranged marriages back then, right? So these guys have known each other for a long time, maybe even most of their lives. They're, they're, they're you know, they're, um, they've been betrothed to each other and they've kind of like grown up together. And so, um, and then Families have been planning this. You're from a small town, Nazareth. They've unearthed it and kind of extrapolated that maybe in Nazareth there's about 500 people that live there. Not very big. It's a small town. The angel appears and lets you know if you're married and lets you know that, uh, that you're pregnant, but you're a virgin, and the Holy Spirit made it happen, and you are carrying the Savior of the world. Imagine how that conversation goes down when you have to tell Joseph about this. I mean, what is that conversation like? Joseph, I'm pregnant, and Joseph's like, it's not mine. Which one am I? You know, he's thinking about all of his buddies in town, you know? And she's like, actually, it's the Holy Spirit, and we're carrying the Savior of the world. Did Joseph, I mean, imagine what kind of a conversation that would have been. Did Joseph believe it at first? Apparently, he doesn't, because he's contemplating 
um, he's contemplating, you know, he's a nice man, so he's contemplating a quiet divorce, just try to, like, you know, get out of the situation, like, just, you know, minimize it. The rumor, mirrors, the rumor mill is already going to start to churn in that place, but he's just going to try to manage it. And the only way that he, cha- the way he changes his mind is it takes a dream. It takes a visitation from another angel to say, Joseph, actually, this is a legit story. So in, we're in sort of like unsure about that story in our today's culture, like virgin birth, are you kidding me? Um, And it's helpful to me to know that like even Joseph didn't believe it either. I mean, he was like, are you kidding me? And so all this is going on. How are we doing so far? I think you could probably call this like a difficult week. (laughs) All right, this is a tough week so far. It's a little awkward. Um, and And then here's what's going on. And then you get word that the Roman government is going to raise taxes again because that's what the census is, okay? The census is we need to count everybody um, in, in because we don't want any money slipping through the cracks. We need to make sure we're, everyone's accounted for so that we can raise your taxes, so we can make sure we're getting our cut. And so, you know, imagine now you have to go to, you know, you have to travel like um, 80 miles to your husband's, you know, to your husband's hometown, place of origin, so you can register, which costs a lot of money already. And you're going there because you're going to have to then give the Roman government even more of your money. So that's not good. And now you're in Bethlehem. It's uh, time for you to give birth. We're not really told, you know, that, that Mary, we don't know why, like, you know, it was just the timing, like they've got to go and register, so maybe something happened and they had to stay in the town before they could get back. But here's what we know is I, we've had four babies, and I know that the birth plan for the baby is a big deal, right? You go in with a plan, like this is who's going to be there, this is, you know, wh- where it's going to be, and you kind of go in with a plan. And when that plan is kind of messed up, it's, it's hard, it's awkward, it's like, oh, it's not how we expected. And so her birth plan is all messed up. She doesn't have her mom there, she doesn't have her midwife there, she doesn't have any of her close friends there. She's in a strange town where she doesn't know anybody and here she is she's about to give birth and Joseph's family is there probably all of his extended relatives are kind of like all around so that's awkward you're kind of like alone in this situation when you're married um, and so then the bright, the bright spot, you know, so then you give birth. And so obviously, like, you're, there's no place for you. So you're in this sort of, like, cave slash thing. So that's bad enough. And, uh, you know, like, it's not an ideal place for a baby to be born. The bright spot that happens here, two things, is one, some, some shepherds show up. And they're, like, you know, they're excited. They're obviously excited about what's going on. But you know that Mary's like, slathering hand sanitizer on all of them, right? You know that she is. She's like, all right. Um, and then, and then uh, at, at some point in this, some wise men show up, and that's a good thing, especially because they're dropping some bling onto Mary and Joseph, all right? They're actually bringing some gifts. The, the shepherds didn't bring nothing, but the wise men, they're bringing something, and that's a good thing because as we see what happens next in the story, they're going to need it, all right? They're going to need some cash on hand because imagine now you've got this baby, and then you hear word that Herod has heard and that he is sending soldiers right now to your town to murder your child. There is a price on your son's head. And you get word that they're on their way because Bethlehem is not far from Jerusalem. And so you've got to pack up your stuff and you've got to, like, where are we going to go? Joseph has some connections down in Egypt, which is a 300-mile journey. And so, and you just, you know, had given birth and you've got a, you've got a kid, you know, you got a little baby. We're not sure how old Jesus was, but anywhere between zero and two is right around where he was. And so, you know, you got to travel and, uh, and you got to get out now because the soldiers are coming. So you get, load up all your stuff, whatever you can carry, and then you start on your journey. And then what's worse is somewhere on your journey, or maybe sometime later, you hear that, yes, you escaped, but those soldiers ended up coming to Bethlehem, didn't find your baby, but killed a whole bunch of other people's babies. 
and you hear word of this, and now you're carrying, now you're carrying that. Just like, oh my gosh. I mean, now just there's that weight of that on you. And now you're in Egypt finally, and you're safe from Herod, but now you're in this unfamiliar place. Who knows whom they knew? They're just starting from scratch. Guys, the Messiah shows up, and things go downhill. You would probably, if you were Joseph and Mary, except for the moment when the wise man shows up with some gold, you probably would have spent your time saying, God, where are you? I thought this was, I thought like this is the Messiah. Like shouldn't there be, like swoop us up, get us a hotel room, like, you know, like something should be happening now, but it's not happening. You can imagine that they were asking these questions. Then they think they get a break, okay? They hear, they hear that Herod, that Herod has died, okay? So yes, we can head back. So they head back. I'll pick up the story. I'll just read the last little bit. It's from Matthew chapter 2, verse 21. So um, so they hear Herod died. So he got up, this is Joseph, took the child and his mother, and he went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, because Archelaus is a chump just like his father. So they think things are good, they show back up, and it's like, turns out, no, there's still a, a wicked ruler, and this is an unsafe place. So they changed plans again. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So, so was fulfilled, and this part's key later, we'll come back to this. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene. So that's the story. You head back to Bethlehem, and now you're starting from scratch. And remember, you're heading back to Bethlehem in the same place, in the same place where it's a small town. Nobody's, not a lot of people are buying the fact that it was a virgin birth, so the rumor mill is just still just churning and churning and churning about who your son is and whether it's legitimate or not. Is it Joseph's? Is it's not? I mean, and in that culture, that would have been a big, big deal. It would have been like just a mark on your head. And in the middle of all this, Matthew wants us to ask the question, God, shouldn't things be going better? God, shouldn't you be sort of like, shouldn't they be getting some wins at this point? Like, God, if you were real, I mean, shouldn't this be, shouldn't this be happening? And they probably were asking all sorts of those questions. And it's the, sort of the question that I think Matthew's trying to want us pastorally just to, to ask ourselves. When we walk through disappointments, when we walk through things in our lives where, that aren't going the way that we expected them to go, when we walk through things that we look around and we say, we say, God, if you were really good, this tragedy wouldn't happen. God, if you were, if you were really real, then this wouldn't be going on in the world. And Matthew wants us to say, like, hey, when, when you go through those things, just like, just like Mary and Joseph were going through, how do you respond? Like, what, wh where's your mind going? And a lot of our minds go to the same place that maybe theirs were. It was like, God, show up. Where are you? If this is real, things should be going better. And when we sort of wrestle with those things, and it's important to wrestle with it. In fact, I want us to wrestle with it this morning. But you, sometimes we end up just getting disillusioned and just getting really bitter towards God. We just get angry towards God. When, 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 when we're infertile and we can't have a child and we always believed that I would have a baby but we, I, we can't have a baby, the question goes, God, where are you? If you were really God, then you should do this for us. That's deep, deep disappointment there, isn't it? When somebody dies, this is the question that we ask. God, where, where are you? Shouldn't you be like around for this? Like if you were really good, wouldn't, wouldn't you have intervened here? I mean, these are the questions of life. And I think Christmas 
is begging us just to ask these questions. I think that's why Matthew, one of the things that Matthew is trying to do. But Matthew is giving us some hope here too. He's giving us some hope. Um, and this is part of the Bible nerdiness that I promise because Matthew is actually super brilliant when he writes his, his gospel. And he's doing so many things that it's hard for us to see. But what Matthew's doing when he's writing the, the beginning here is he's, he's pairing up the story of Jesus with a very familiar other story that we're a little less familiar with, but the Jewish people would have been really familiar with. And, and what Matthew's doing is he's sort of like, like juxtaposing them together. Because can you think of another story in the Old Testament where there's like a big bad leader who wants to be in control and he's kind of like got the Jewish people under wraps and, and he feels threatened so he kills some babies and then there's this like deliverer that kind of rises up and he's going to try to squash the deliverer. Can anybody think of a story like that in the Old Testament? That some, from, yeah, right? It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the Israelites. That's why we're singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Ransom, you know, the, the, how does it go? And ransom them, O Israel, right? I mean, it's all linked together, um, which is super, super brilliant. Get nerdy with me. Check this out. Um, let's go to that slide. So here's like the basic overview of Exodus, kind of tiny words, I know. But look, so the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, right? The oppressive king is Pharaoh. And then he gets word that like there's this, there's this deliverer and there's going to be like a new kingdom if this deliverer raises to the top. Who's that? That's Moses. And he is threatened, so he says, hey, midwives in Israel, throw all the, the Israelite babies into the Nile River because he just wants to squash the, the Israelites. And then um, God intervenes at this point. They escape out of Egypt, right? Remember that? You, you, saw, you saw the movie, right? Um, they, uh, and then they go through the water. They passage through the Red Sea, right? It's the kind of like deliverance through the water. And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness, and then... God takes them to Mount Sinai and he speaks from the mountain and he sh shows them how to live. That's kind of like the, the shape of the book of, of Exodus or the beginnings of the Israelite people. All right, now watch what Matthew does. It's so brilliant. Let's look at the next slide. So here's Matthew. And what does he say? He says this about Jesus. Now we're going to walk through the book of Matthew. So first, the Israelites aren't enslaved to Egypt. They're enslaved to Rome in this situation. There's this oppressive king. That's Herod. And then Herod gets word that there's this, there's this deliverer and a new kingdom. That's going to come through this deliverer. This is, this is Jesus. And then Herod's threatened, and so he, he, he goes and he, he slaughters the kids because he doesn't want this new kingdom to come. And then instead of escaping out of Egypt, it's so fascinating. Matthew just, it's like it's switched around. Now they're escaping to Egypt. They're heading there. And then look what happens next. In the very next little section, you know what happens in, next in Matthew chapter 3? Ma Matthew goes right from chapter 2 right into chapter 3. You know what the chapter 3 is? The baptism of Jesus. The Israelites went through the waters of the Red Sea, but Jesus went through the waters of the Jordan. And then what happens in the very next thing? Guys, it's just too good. Jesus immediately gets sent out 40 days into the wilderness. And imagine if you're a Jewish person. I mean, you're just, you're seeing these connections that we don't see. And it's like, and it's like, oh, the Israelites were 40 years in the desert, but Jesus goes, right, he's 40 years. And it's like, it's like that last story, it was, you know, the Israelites didn't hold up their end of the bargain. It was kind of like a failure, but God didn't fail. God, God, his hands weren't off the wheel. Something's happening. And now here comes Jesus and Jesus is going to kind of do it all again. And then do you know what happens in the very next chapter in Matthew chapter five? The Sermon on the Mount. Now it's not Mount Sinai. Now it's the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And you see how like closely 
they're together. And do you see what Matthew's trying to do here? It's actually so brilliant. In the midst of us saying, God, where are you? Like, God, are you going to show up in any, of these, in any of these stories? It seems like if you were real that you would, like, do something here. And Matthew is trying to remind the Jewish people and he's trying to remind us that, hey, you know what? We've seen this story before. And in fact, this is a story that's been played out in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament over and over again. It's a story that's been played out in all of our lives is that there are these moments where we feel like God is not showing up and we're frustrated and we think that maybe he's just kind of forgotten about us and we feel like maybe he's just not even real in the first place or maybe he's real but he just doesn't care. And we just start to play around with those things, but then we're reminded that we've got these, we've got these, we've got the story from the Old Testament where it seems like God's hands were off the wheel, but oh, they weren't. God was doing something. He was leading and guiding his people. Something was happening. And in moments where we're tempted to think, I think, God, where are you? Matthew wants us to remember the Exodus story, and he wants us to remember what Jesus is doing. Listen, what is Jesus doing here? Um, see, we often, there's this thing going on that's, that's probably gone on forever, but it's certainly something that goes on in, in American Christianity right now. And you could call it the prosperity gospel. Some people call it the prosperity gospel. Um, it goes by other names. But the basic idea is that the, the premise is this. God, I will follow you. I will worship you. But you got to hold up your end of the deal. I'm going to give you my allegiance but you better help me accomplish some of my dreams. And it becomes this relationship where God becomes the genie, essentially. Or the phrase that I like to use, that God becomes the pinata and our religion becomes the stick. And we say, God, we'll do the stuff for you, but then you, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta come my way. So you know that house that I hope I get? You need to get me that house. And you know, the, like the, the family that I'm expecting, that's, that's what you need to give me. And also, keep cancer away. Because if cancer comes, like, then, you know, we're out. Or whatever it is, whatever deal we've made. We kind of create this relationship with God where if we follow him and, if, and we believe if he's really good, if he's really a good God, then he should be, like, mostly interested in making all of my wishes come true. And so we, then we get frustrated when, when we have disappointments. We get so angry at God when there's setbacks. And then, and then not only that, but then we start to doubt his existence. Then we start just like shaking our fist at him. And God, where are you? Why haven't you shown up? Or maybe what's worse, maybe, maybe he doesn't fulfill our dreams, but maybe some of our nightmares come true. And we just go through tragedy and heartbreak. And in the midst of that, we're like, God, if you were really good, you should have showed up here. And what Christmas is begging us to just wrestle with, and in a moment we're going to close and we're going to take communion together. And it's kind of a weird Sunday because it's, it's not like a go get them champ sort of a Sunday. It's kind of like, a, like this is an important thing for us just to kind of nestle into. God, where are there disappointments in my life? And God, what are you doing about them? Like how can I trust you in the midst of them? These are real questions that these passages are begging us to ask. And so what is God doing then? If he's not intervening, if he's not like making our dreams come true, then where's the hope in all this? Here's what it is. The hope is this, is that God has not, the, the, the train is not off the tracks. God has not taken his hands off the wheel. God actually is intervening. And in some cases, God actually will intervene and 
cure that cancer or, you know, or swoop in and, and rescue you from this situation or that situation. Sometimes God intervenes like this. How he picks and chooses when he does all that is just so out of our pay grade. We just, we just can't even know. But here's what we can know, that God actually is intervening, but he's intervening in a way that we just, we just, we wouldn't expect. But it's actually the thing that we need most. Um, I want to take one last Bible nerd moment, okay? You ready? The last Bible nerd moment we've got this morning is, what is what's the hope in all this? It's, it goes back to that, I've had so much fun just like reading about this this week. It goes back to Matthew chapter 2 in, uh, in verse 22. Remember it says, um, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. That's Joseph. He takes his family. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay? That's how the chapter ends. And, it, and throughout that chapter, Matthew is, is like quoting, he's specifically quoting some Old Testament prophets you can actually go to those passages in the Old Testament and see right where Matthew's quoting. But you know what's interesting about this one? It says that so was fulfilled what he said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You can, you can like do a word search in the Old Testament for the word Nazareth or Nazarene. You're not going to find it. You're going to like try to find, okay, what, what prophet is he quoting? And it turns out there's, he, there's, he's not quoting a prophet. There's like no passage in the Old Testament that he's like quoting from. But here's Matthew and he's saying that so was fulfilled through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And so we're left with like, okay, wait, wait, what prophets? And like where in the Old Testament does it talk about Jesus being a Nazarene? Because you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. I promise. I looked, okay? There's Samson and there's like a Nazarite vow thing, which is, but, it's, but it's like way different. Nazareth wasn't even a town in the Old Testament, all right? So it's like, so what are they talking about here? And what's so interesting is what probably Matthew's, Matthew's actually, he's actually making like a really awesome pun. It's like really punny and it's brilliant. He's, he wants us to be reminded of something that's happening in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, where, where there's this sort of vision for the Messiah, for who the Messiah is going to be. And in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about how this deliverer is going to be like a be like a shoot that will spring up from the stem, uh, from like, the, the, like a stump from the, from the family of Jesse, uh, a branch from the roots, and it's going to be a branch that's going to kind of shoot up and bear fruit. It's kind of this like really cool picture of like, hey, just when you think like everything's stumpish and everything's dead, the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to like, it's going to be like a little stick, a little stick that kind of like grows out of the stump. And he's going to be like this branch. And this branch is going to grow and this branch is going to bear fruit. It's this picture of this Messiah and how he's going to come. And so the Jewish people were just like waiting expectantly for the branch man, the stick man. When's the stick man going to come? When's the stick going to come? And so here's the Bible nerd moment. It's so cool. You know this word Nazarene? Let's go to that, the next slide about Nazareth. Did I give that one to you? Oh, no. All right, I forgot that one. That's all right, I'll just tell you about it. <laughs> I'll tell you. So what's, what's cool is, is in Hebrew, it, there's it, the, the, word, the word Nazareth, if you kind of like break it down, um, or the word branch, rather, the word branch in Hebrew is, is this word netzer, netzer. And you can pronounce it nezer. Nezer is the word for branch. And so, can I see what Matthew's doing? Matthew's like taking this town that Jesus was born in, and guess what this town like, like Nazareth, it's, it's stick town. Jesus was literally raised in the sticks. 
It's like the branch that, that, Jew, that the, the Jewish people are waiting for. And guess like what, what town he grows up in? It's in Nazarene, in Nazarene. It's like the stick town. And Matthew's just like being so brilliant and just like bringing those two things together. And it, it, he's not just doing something like really tricky with Hebrew and Greek that, you know, it's fun for us to, you know, it's interesting for us. He's actually doing something really pastoral here. And this is where I'll close for us is he's reminding us that, yes, God is intervening, but God isn't always going to intervene in a way that makes all your dreams come true. God is intervening, but he isn't always going to intervene in a way that, that shields you from tragedy and despair and disappointment. But that, yes, God is intervening, not because he does all those things for us, although we're, we're, we're thankful when he does, but he is intervening because he is, he's, Emmanuel, he's with us. He's, he was raised in the sticks. He was just like you and me. That he is a God who is king of the universe and has the power to save, but decided not to just stay up in heaven and just do all that from afar. He chose to say, I'm gonna do what nobody's gonna expect. I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be woundable like them. Physically, emotionally, I'm going to be just like them. I'm going to put myself in a place where I can experience betrayal like they experience betrayal. I'm going to come down in a way so that I can experience what it's like to be five, what it's like to be 10, what it's like to be a teenager. Jesus was a teenager. This is so brilliant. Therefore, if you're a teenager in the room, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be a teenager. It's good news. It's good news. He is not a God that is just like off and distant. He's a God that intervenes, but he intervenes by coming, listen, by coming into the cancer with us, by coming into the, the losing a loved one in a, with us. The, the, he's, he's, he's intervening because he's with us in the tragedy, that when we experience tears, it's like God is right along with us crying too. And it's like, oh, God, I don't need you to cry. I need you to just fix it. I need you to be the Savior that saves. Don't, like, cry with me. But listen, this is what we have in the God that we have. He doesn't fix everything, but here's what he does promise. He's a God that's with us. He's with you. This is the pastoral moment. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what disappointments or frustrations or, but listen, you are not abandoned. He loves you. He's with you. He's proven it to us. So let's go to the table today and respond to that good good news he's with you he's with you whatever you're going through when we come to the table today on the other side there's the communion stuff in a second i'll, I'll have the band come up and prayer team our prayer team is going to be over there we're just going to create some space just to respond today because i don't know i don't know what it is you know that when we were singing the hymn or the the, the carol this morning oh come oh come emmanuel do you notice that that song is like full of all like like uh minor keys and isn't it kind of feel a little awkward when you sing Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel, but it's kind of like, a, like sad when you sing it? Does that bug you about this song sometimes? Sometimes it bugs me about it. It's like, I want joy to the world, you know? Like, but rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. But actually, it's a beautiful thing because in our rejoicing, sometimes there's some minor keys. In the midst of our minor keys, there can be rejoicing because we live in a world that groans and God is groaning alongside with us because all things will be made right again.
They will. That's his promise. And it all comes in culmination when Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what we're staking our hope in. That's what I'm staking my hope in. I hope you are too.